everybody. Welcome to a special LA Live Talks, as Ted just mentioned, uh, here from my very tidy office, very untidy office. And I'm so happy uh, to be presenting this on behalf of LA Live Talks and my podcast, Black on the Air. And welcome, you know, I should say one of my regular guests at this point, you know, I've talked to this guy, you know, of course, I'm a huge fan of his books. You all know him from Blindside. I mean, all the way back to Liar's Poker, Big Short, all that stuff. Michael Lewis, author of The Fifth Risk. Michael, welcome to LA Live Talks. Well, thank you, Larry. I feel like I'm with you. And let's mention your podcast again, Michael, real quick before we, I know Ted mentioned it. There's a podcast, a narr- it's a narrative podcast, and it's called Against the Rules. Right. And, and it's just started, the second season has just begun airing a few weeks ago. Awesome. Michael, I love talking to you because you, you always have a way of looking at things like we've just gone through or finding stories that maybe, you know, we may have overlooked and giving us deep insight on it, you know. And <laughs> it's weird because... This last six months, and I, I'm sure, I hope to see the Michael Lewis book about these last six months. You know, what has been your take on what's been going on uh, lately? Do you have any reflection or anything? Uh, how, how, sure. how are you doing, by the way? No, no, sure. So, um, you know, it's been a really interesting, I've been energized by it. Yeah. And, and I do think there's a book in it, one way or another. I'm, I'm fiddling with it now. Yeah. Uh, but, and, and so, no, I'll ramble a little bit. Yeah. So the, the first, the first response I had to it was naturally an extension of of the fifth risk, and it was the fifth risk was all about how the presidency, the the federal government that the president runs, is a a manager of a big portfolio of existential risks. Yes. <laughs> and, yes if, exactly. and, and if you treat it with the hostility and the indifference and the basically yeah. the incompetence that the Trump yeah. the Trump administration has, yeah. you you exaggerate the dangers of all these risks. And the question was, when I wrote that book, I, I, I very explicitly framed it as, how's he going to kill me? Like, yeah. what is, what's the thing? And, and it's been answered. And it's been answered, <laughs> right. And so, and so, that my, so the first response was, well, oh, so this is the thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I, that, that book looked at three parts of the government. It kind of picked for their obscurity, the Commerce <laughs> Department, the Agriculture Department, and, and uh, the Energy Department. Yeah. To show that even in these places, like you really should worry about how it's being managed because if you don't, something really, really bad could happen. And but on, on the cutting room floor, in, in a folder, there was a folder that said Center for Disease Control. And I thought, you know, and it ended up not in the book, and it ended up not in the book because I thought, nah, 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 it's too obvious. There's no way, there's no way they'd neglect that. And, and, uh, and I just, I wrote it off because I just thought, no, everybody knows that's this is that's like a serious risk, right? Right. So, so the first response was like, "What did they? What were they doing?" Uh, like, and so, uh, and in true to form, they mismanaged the apparatus that was designed to deal with this this particular danger, this this threat. Yeah. So, some some beginning of the beginning of my pandemic was kind of thinking and looking at that, and trying to understand yeah. why they had done what they'd done. It really connects. It's funny because the way they handled it is exactly how you described how they've handled everything from the beginning. And it's weird because to go back in time and relive that, I was covering on my show at the time when they were supposed to come up with their transition teams, you know, where, where they were at least supposed to begin the conversations. This is when there were still a lot of candidates and you start from there in your book, you know. Right. And just even from the beginning, just 
Trump's contempt for anything with any more intellectual heft than a bucket of KFC was just too much for him to handle. He said to Chris Christie, when Christie told him he needed a many hundreds of persons transition team to, to go and get the briefings from the, from the, from the civil service. Uh, when that, that he said, Chris, it's, it's simple. We can take an hour break from the victory party and learn everything we need to know about the federal yeah, government. After he won, you know, so it is, so it, it was, there was a kind of like playbook um, yeah. in, in how you respond to the Ebola virus, uh, the, the Ebola outbreak, and how the right. Obama administration have responded to the swine flu outbreak. And these things were really important. And they, ne- right. they, they never really bothered to receive the information. And it, is, and it wasn't just Trump himself, right? It was he fired everybody who might have done the job. So right. he, he, he sort of disabled the flow of understanding that might have reached him. Uh, did, did you ever find out on the people that you've talked to? I'm sure you must have talked to a lot of people, uh, maybe off the record or on the record or whatever. I don't, I'm not sure how, you know, when you're researching something like this, but people probably don't want to be known, you know. But um, why would Trump, knowing that he doesn't have any experience, would get rid of the people best qualified to make him look good? You know, I mean, these people, Chris Christie would make him look good if he left Christie in charge, you know. You know, you get different answers from different people. The closer mm-hmm. you get to him, you like to like Steve, you talk to Steve Bannon. So right. He says he just doesn't care. He, what he says literally is he doesn't give a shit. He doesn't care. He's a barbarian. And, uh, and it, 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 there's a total indifference there. Yeah. I think it starts with that. But mm-hmm. then I think, I think there's something else going on. And, you know, this is probably more, uh, more the job of a psychiatrist than the job right. my job. But, but I do think that, if you were going when you're when you're when you're charged with something as brave mm-hmm. as managing these risks that that you know the lives of millions of people will turn on. Right. I, I think that it's if you, if it's easier to be to be dismissive of it all and mm-hmm. to just say not my problem. Right. If, if, <laughs> if you don't if you don't engage in, if you don't engage if you don't show up for the class, it's sort of easier to tell yourself in your mind the test isn't important. If you right. never show up for the class in the first place, and it's sort of like knowledge has this price that you, when you learn even a little about something, if you let someone into your office who says, yeah. you know, Mr. President, there's this infrastructure that we have to deal with a pandemic, uh, it was flu, but pandemic disease that you probably should know something about. The minute you have that understand conversation, you're implicated. Yeah. Uh, you, you got it in your head. You can't move through the world with a really simple worldview. You get confused. It's like yeah. people who, when they don't go to the doctor, it means that they're okay. <laughs> it's a bit, right, precisely. Not, yes. That's why this is why. As long as I don't go and I don't know that I'm sick, I'm okay. This, yeah. this is why you're you. So that's exact. That's exactly right. So that's mm-hmm. exactly right. It's that. It's that phenomenon. Right. And because you can't. What you can't do. You know. It's. It's a, such an interesting. Your question is so interesting because. Well, so in the case of say, yeah, it would make him. It would make him. Sh- the thing is, he wants to look good more than anything else. We know that he's a narcissist, you know, and it, it, it's almost like his narcissism just got a little too much. Where he not only wants to look good, he's got to take credit for everything too, you know. But, so he doesn't have the ability to rely on other people to make him look good. He doesn't. Yeah. He, you know, he doesn't. He's never really in his life marshaled experts to make right. him. Look good. So that so that's not that's not in his like portfolio of talents. Um, 
but but it's a curious this is a really curious case study because yeah. there there are things that could have happened like um he put the guy in charge of the national weather service who wanted to dis- disable the national weather service because the guy <laughs> the guy was the guy owned AccuWeather, a private weather company right and, and you could see you could see in situations like that where the, there was a motive and the motive was narrow commercial interest and narrow commercial interest got in the way of yeah. good good government but right. in th- in this case it's not like an obvious narrow commercial I- interest in in a pandemic it's right. like i mean i guess in some diabolical world there's some pharmaceutical company that would really like a pandemic but but probably not <laughs> and and so it really is a case where it is a pure expression of the desire for ignorance and yeah. and that desire was fulfilled you know it so it is a it so that so you asked me how that stage one of my pandemic was just marveling yeah. at how how just in character the whole thing thing yeah. was and in just adapting it's been a very strange uh, yeah. b- this business of adapting to this this idea that you know other human beings are essentially agents of infection and 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 it, you shouldn't get too close to them has yeah. been that's been that's been a jarring adjustment for me. and trump's relationship and this is what your book covers, you know, for those areas that you said. But if we look at COVID, Trump's relationship to the non-truth and to conspiracy and everything other than the truth and science and that is fascinating to watch in real time. Because he has these, you know, when they were doing the briefings, he has those panel of experts who are in real time disagreeing with him on the stage in front of us. And he's talking about injecting <laughs> bleach. bleach, bleach, yeah, 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 <laughs> and acting like we're the stupid ones for not listening to him. Well, there was a moment, and the moment may return. Just the mere fact that the, the experts are on stage with him is a, is a good sign, right? It could be, it could have been even uh, worse. Not anymore. No, right, that's true. But they're not doing those anymore because it right. made him look bad, and his poll numbers were going down. Yeah, but but the. Um, it's a funny, it's a, it's a, again, it's a funny situation for him because the virus is, although it has obviously been politicized in some weird ways. Sure. Which is ridiculous. Right. Right. It's not a political question. The virus doesn't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican and, and it doesn't, and you can't spin it away and you can't, you can't create some alternative reality where people don't die when they're infected. Now you can create an alternative reality where you say they never die. That's really hard to do. That does that seems even beyond his powers. Well, uh, and so, it's like I was saying before, where he's saying the only reason why people are dying is because we're testing them. You know, you know? <laughs> <laughs> if we weren't testing them, we wouldn't know they were dying of COVID. So technically, they wouldn't be dying. It's our fault for we because we test so much, people are dying of COVID. Yeah. yeah. And the truth is, we didn't. Act, we were only kind of getting up to speed on our testing. That we didn't actually even test that much in the beginning. It's a, it's a. I think he really was, you know, in his own weird world. I can understand mental world why he was this way, hostile yeah. to testing because testing that is the only way you found positive cases. And which you could he say, thinks makes him look bad. Which he thinks makes him look bad, right? right. But the deaths you find even if you don't test. Because they come to you, they come to you, and, and no, but, so, but, but only if you test do they do you know they died of COVID. That's that's that, that's that's right. <laughs> that's that that's that's right. That's that right. Testing is the problem. But but, but I, I, 
I find it, you know, our society is in a really curious state of mind, stage of development, all the rest, because, because we are, we're the, we're supposed to be the leaders in this stuff. Absolutely. Like we, have, we have so much talent in science yeah. and medicine. We have so many resources. We have, uh, we are, we have, a lot, and this is a technology and data problem too, th- yeah. th- that we are the leaders in data science. Yeah. And the idea that it, there's a virus that started halfway around the world, yeah. that we, we're now the leaders in dying from it, it's, mm-hmm. is, it's a kind of incredible situation. And it, yeah. so this is my sort of, sort of, I've kind of been looking at our country mm-hmm. as this, re, uh, this team of really talented players with a really shitty coach. Uh, that we, it's sort of like you, you have, it's like you took an all, the best players from the NBA and you went to the Olympics and you didn't win a game. Uh, and it, 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 it's, it feels like that. It feels like a, a coaching leadership organizational debacle that well, of, of a proportion that I could, even I couldn't have imagined. No. And what's, what's, what's really troublesome to me too, I don't know if you talk about this in your book, I may miss it, but he has the complicity of the state run news, you know, over at Fox where like, for instance, he's turned his role of leader to get us through this into a contest of blame right now. That's right. what he's turned it into. Right. And what's the, like, he ordered the shutdown and everything, but he makes it seem like the governors have did it and he's tried his best, you know, to tell them to open up and everything. And then Fox news plays the same game saying these democratic States, you know, these blue States that haven't opened up. It's like, people are fucking dying. Are you kidding me? You're yeah. going to make this about, Blame? Yeah, it, it's mm-hmm. it's it's wor- it's so it's so ugly because what it, what they've really done is push down the 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 targets of it. They've redirected the anger uh, that comes from having to shut down things right. in order to save lives at people in in positions who, that aren't that powerful. I mean, like the public health, the local public health officers in this country, in our, in my state. In my state, you know, pretty blue state, um, that it, they're getting death threats because the way that the population sees it is, ah, Trump says it's okay, uh, yeah. but this public health officer says I can't go to church or I can't go to a ball game. He's or, the asshole. Yeah. yeah, and and so it's it's so he has completely abdicated the responsibility of creating an environment mm-hmm. in which these people can do their jobs responsibly. Now th- these people do understand their trade-offs too. It's not like, it's not like they want to have lockdown, but mm-hmm. but when you know, I mean, we saw it play out here in my neighborhood. Mm-hmm. The, Al- the Alameda County, uh, Alameda County, California, public health officer said it wasn't safe for Tesla to open, and mm-hmm. Elon, Elon Musk stands up and says, "I'm a, I'm a move to Texas and close down my factory, and so uh, you know, if you don't let me open." Well, today they just the front page of the newspaper has Tesla workers are sick. Uh, now we don't know they got sick on the job. It's possible they didn't, but it's just you know these the health officers are trying to do their best. But they're yeah. in envi- they're in an environment where they could you know Elon Musk had his way, uh, and he had his way because at the very the, t- the top of the government, president the president of the United States isn't giving these people any support. And so it's it's the local Alameda County health officer having to go toe to toe with Elon Musk mm. rather than the White House. Yes, uh, they've been yes. deserted by the person who should be leading them into battle, not pushing them into battle and say, "Where where are you guys going? I didn't tell them to go there." 
it really is. It really is like if we were invaded by Russia and the president said, you guys got this. Call me if you need some supplies. But, you know, it really is. Montana needs to do better job of defending that border. You know, and it, it, it and it's it, it it's it's a problem. It's not a problem. This, in some ways, it's naturally local localized that you're gathering intelligence and responding to outbreaks at a local level. Sure, but but, but without a centralized response, it's all folly. Because if mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, uh, the state of Louisiana manages itself very sensibly, but the states of uh, uh, of Texas and Mississippi decide ah everybody you know everybody can play then. Then Louisiana, it, it was futile. For, you know, the, 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 the virus mushrooms in Mississippi and Texas, and Louisiana gets infected all over again. And on top of it, paid a price of doing the, doing the right thing and shutting stuff down. So it's just, mm-hmm. it really requires a sense. It's a public good. Respond, it's a public, it, it's sort of like a problem of the commons. And the only way you deal with it, it was, is with central authority, and he has abdicated the responsibility. And he's playing both sides um, with the racial tension after the George Floyd uh, incident. Yeah, so, that, so I, you know, I don't want, I do want to say one thing, and that is I found when I was working on the book, the last thing I wanted to do was spend too much time just on Donald Trump. Right. And I tell you why, because partly because he's a symptom, you know, that it's not just Donald Trump that we put him in office. I mean, it was a minority of us, but nevertheless, we put him in office. And, and partly because it obscured like the the bigger problem. I mean, if if this is, I mean, what should be happening is that when the president behaves this way, he should be run out of office. I mean, he should have been run out of there. He should have, that that his poll numbers should should show you know fifteen percent support, not thirty nine percent support. And um, and so there are two things that other things that really interest me about this. One is the tolerance of the society yeah. for for the mismanagement. Mm-hmm. And, and the second is, and this is the story that interests me the most, and it was the story that interested me the most in The Fifth Risk, the way, the way people compensate for mm-hmm. this psycho dad we have running the family. I mean, mm-hmm. the way other pieces of the society have to pick up and sort of perform acts of heroism that should be unnecessary. The, right. way, the, the way a local public health officer has to go, you know, endure death threats to do her job, mm-hmm. uh, but they're doing it. You know, there actually are people who are trying to kind of pick up or, you know, do the job that the president, in effect, should be doing. And those people interest me a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but you're, you're right. Everything you say about Trump seems really obvious to me. But <laughs> and if, if, but if you can explain why it isn't obvious to you know many millions of Americans, I'd love to hear the explanation because it seemed, it does seem crazy what he's done. I, I think the way people interpret things are just different. They, they see Trump as a warrior for this um, assault from the left that has been nonstop for like, to them for like the last 30 or 40 years, or maybe mm-hmm. go back to Vietnam, you know, and that he is their one defense against the left. And they see the left as a bullying um, mechanism of society and he stands up to those bullies and so they see his inappropriate behavior like his tweets they see it as standing up to the bully left that's right. how they look at it so they they don't care about who he's picking on his choice of words or that type of thing they feel that that the culture the conservative culture or as they call it american culture you know right 
is being destroyed by the left. And he is one person in there who can protect them. I think that's the, the to me, the most direct reason that explains how otherwise you would think rational people. We're not talking about fringe. Right. Like we know there are rational people out there who just right. let these things go by. Yeah. And I, it's just. So let me, so here's a follow-up question. Now that you, I think you kind of rightly are occupying the mind of the people who, who can tolerate it. I think, I think that's um, yeah. yeah. So, so the so. next question is, why is it in the interest of this bullying left to shut down their local economies? Like, like, um, I, I live in Berkeley. Berkeley is famously a left, a lefty city. Yes. Um, yes. But, but nobody, nobody here actually wants their the little restaurants and businesses shut down. It, the pain is just unbelievable. Yes. It's, it's heartbreaking their, to watch. Their so, conspiracy theory is that that is how the left can gain power because their king had the economy humming. But if the left can shut it down and destroy it, they can blame it on him and, and get him out of it. So they think that the left is more interested in power than people having jobs. I've heard people say this, by the way. I'm not making this up. Because I've never actually met anybody who thinks that. I, I, I have not, I must be in the leftiest place in America. And I haven't met anybody. I haven't met a soul who thinks, wow, we're going to get power from Donald Trump by shutting down our restaurants and our small like, was like, I'm in San Francisco, Berkeley. Am I in the leftiest place? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I know, yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, here I'm a right winger, but it's a, it's yeah, you a, probably are. I am, but it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a, I don't, I haven't met anybody except heartbroken people that that, that this has to ha- happen in order to preserve public health. Well, here, go ahead, Mike. I, I was just Tucker Carlson every night on his show makes arguments like this, and his reach to people is huge. You know, he has a huge audience, and he makes these types of arguments. Yeah, I don't watch it. So I'm just telling you where it comes yeah, from. Yeah. So that's where it comes from. So, well, you know, I'm, I don't get out much these days. So it's really, it's really nice to have you come in and bring a different point. Yes, I'm sorry to do a little bit. Okay. Here's what I want to ask you though. Let's talk about the risks, you know, because you say the fifth risk. So like, are there one, two, three, four, five risks, you know, or this, is there a top risk? When you talked about, I mean, one of the scariest things in your book was talking about that, you know, when we developed the nuclear weapons and how the waste was put there, it makes you think, what, you know, what were people even thinking then? And you talk about not protecting our citizens. You want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, I mean, I'll tell you where the book, the best way to talk about this is where the book title comes, comes from. The moment <laughs> that I realized what I want to call this thing. I just started in on it. And the first, the first chunk of it was about the Department of Energy. Yeah. And I picked the Department of Energy because... Trump had appointed Rick Perry to run it. And Rick, yes. and Rick Perry, <laughs> yes. well, but it's even better than that, right? He was a presidential candidate who says he wants to get rid of this bloated federal bureaucracy. And there were three entire agencies he was going to get rid of. And mm-hmm. he was going to name them. And he went kind of, uh, one, two, and he couldn't remember the third one. He couldn't remember the name of it. And the one he said later he couldn't remember the name of was the Department of Energy. Right. So, so, right. so he gets, wants to get rid of it, can't remember the name of it, and now he's the head of it. And the minute he becomes the head of it, he finds out for the first time in his existence what it does. And what it is is a massive, incredibly complicated physics project. (laughs) And the the massive physics project does many, many things that are terrifying. Mm -hmm. But one of the things it does is it maintains the nuclear arsenal. Mm -hmm. So, 
So he says he does an about face at his confirmation hearings. Barry does this. I'm so sorry I said that. Now I understand. Now I, I've opened a book and I and some, someone has explained right. So I thought I'll start there because um, I didn't know what it did. I can't I can't pretend to have known what it did. So, but I, I call around in the Department of Energy and I find there's this character called the Chief Risk Officer. He's now been booted out but he's in his home in Long Island. Mm-hmm. His name is John McWilliams. And he says, I can go see him. So I go to, I go to Quag, Long Island, and, uh, and, and sit down with him in his backyard, where he says, um, he picks up his cell phone, and he says, just so you understand, the Chinese are listening. And I said, what do you mean the Chinese are listening? He says, anybody who's at where I was in the Department of Energy just assumes that everything that they say, the Chinese and the Russians are listening. And, but, and, and he says, okay, but, but, but so I, he says, I'm not going to talk about anything that's classified. And I said, okay, I'm here. I said, basically, I'm here from the Trump administration. I don't have a lot of time for you bozos, but give me the top five risks that you, that you manage. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay. Um, he later said, he sent me a list of 138 risks. He said, oh. there are a hundred, <laughs> but he said, I'll give you the top five. And he says, number one, a nuclear bomb going off when it shouldn't. Um, he says, we worry about it every day and it's come, it's come very close to happen. <sighs> he said, number two, attacks on the electrical grid. He says, that sounds like an inconvenience to you, but we, we, we repel attacks every day, often from, you know, sinister right. foreign forces. And if you imagine what happens if say the power goes out in the whole Northeastern corridor for two months, the, uh-huh. the death, the death and misery that that would cause is unbelievable. He says, but, and, and he said, and he says, people don't, th- Americans don't think about this, but we brought all the, you t- this patchwork of utilities that we have in this country, we bring those, this, the executives of the biggest one into a, into a, they call it the skip, the secured little place where, where the Chinese can't hear and show them what has happened in the American power grid just mm-hmm. over the last few years. And he says, they start to sweat. He said, they, they can't believe how horrible it is, uh, how risky it is. So he said, that was number two. He said, number three, and this, so you got to remember, this is three years ago. He says, you know, all those funny little missiles, the North Koreans are firing into the ocean and everybody laughs about how they don't know what they're doing. He said, well, actually, there's a team of Ukrainian scientists that moved to North Korea uh, about a year ago, and they actually know what they're doing. And we can tell our physicists can tell by the way those missiles are being launched and the where they're going, that they're getting smarter and smarter and smarter. And so we're really worried about their ability to deliver a nuclear weapon to the American West Coast. Right. So that's number three. And he said, number four, he said, some president coming in who doesn't understand the importance of the Iranian nuclear deal, because if the Iranians, because that is going to prevent the Iranians from getting a nuclear weapon. Mm -hmm. And if anybody who bails on that dramatically increases the odds, they will. And if they do, we're talking about greater, greater increase of risk of nuclear war in the Middle East. So he said, that was four. And then I said, well, what's the fifth? And he goes, you know, let me think about that. And he thought, and he kind of was frozen. And I thought, all those other four risks, I'm worried about them too. Yeah. But if somebody's really thinking about them and worried about them, and it's top of mind, they're more likely to be managed. It's those things that are kind of out there that are in the back of your mind and you're not paying that much attention to. It seemed to me the ones that are scary. It's like the one that hasn't surfaced in a while. Mm-hmm. Like the hurricane hits New Orleans and everybody's ready for the next hurricane. But if the earthquake hits New Orleans, nobody knows what to do. Right. And, and, uh, and so he, and when he, I said, 
the fifth risk. I said, you've just given me basically the title of my book. And it's the book, it's the risk that nobody is really thinking about, but that the federal government is actually responsible for managing. And then he said, well, I'll give you the fifth one. And, and he said, the fifth one, I'm going to say, it's not sexy. He says, but it's program management. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I'll give you an example. He says, just in the Department of Energy, he says, we have one program that costs $3 billion a year. And it is in, it's in eastern Washington, where 600 square miles have been fenced off. And it's the site where the plutonium was made for one of the atom bombs that was dropped on Japan. So there was this, it was this massive plutonium manufacturing uh, facility that was built, thrown up in, in the early 1940s, right. mid-1940s. And, and, um, and, all, and, and just a, a breathtaking amount of chemical waste and plutonium waste was, was leached into the soil. I mean, millions, actually hundreds of millions of gallons of the stuff. And it's now, right. it's underground. And it's a, it kind of, it looks like a plume when you look at images of it. And it's, it's heading slowly towards the Columbia River. Mm. Um, and, the, and if it gets into the Columbia River, it poisons the, the water supply of the Pacific Northwest. And he said, that is, he says, that is a program that has been not very well managed. Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to cost to done well, it's 100 years and $100 billion. Huh. And it's the sort of thing that we could just take our eye off the ball. And, le- and, and, and you never know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So. Um, so that was, so that's got, that's what got me into, but then it took him a while to think of that. I thought it was interesting, but anyway, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, the bigger point was, we, what was it that we didn't imagine was going to happen and it happened and it turned out to be this, uh, yeah, and, 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 and the, but the truth was I, I was being much too subtle because I was thinking, I was thinking in terms of like, uh, you know. I was thinking, oh, the most obvious risks, oh, they will still be managed. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's where nobody's, it's where the society's really not paying attention that we got to worry about. And it turned out we need to worry about all of them. Uh, that we need, that, because the pan, a, a risk of a pandemic, I spent time with Obama. I wrote a big piece about Obama in, right before his second election. So 2000, early 2012. Mm-hmm. And I asked him what kept him up at night. And it was, it, with either one or two was pandemic. Uh, he says it's it's going to happen. There are more and more of us. We're a natural host to a virus. Does um, it in in his first year with the uh, SARS or whatever? With, 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 with this, with this swine flu, swine flu, and then the and also Ebola. And so and Ebola, right, 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 right. And actually, you if you, you don't, and it happened during the Bush administration with the bird flu. And you go back, you go back in history, and this is always bubbling along. It's not like we're safe. Um, yeah, yeah, it didn't. It didn't just appear. It's been going on for eons and eons. Yeah. And it's not. And 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 specific steps had been taken mm-hmm. to to make sure we had a more effective response. And the big, mm-hmm. the, to me, the, there's a one. It's the biggest thing. And two, it was two the most interesting thing. The biggest thing was they they put on the National Security Council in the White House a pandemic response director. Before there had never been such a person. And mm-hmm. the point of the point of that was. You're overseeing all the agencies in the response. So you can say, if the Center for Disease Control says they have a test, you t- you're a check on them. You can test it. So, right. so you can stop interagency fighting. You can coordinate things. And, they've, and Trump fired that person. But mm-hmm. the other thing they did, and this is the thing that, you know, in, in a funny way, to me, is more distressing. 
because of because of the nature of our neglect as a society of our government and our mm -hmm. hostility to our government. One of the big things our government does, and it's the it's maybe the least sexy, but it is hugely important, is make lots of basic investment in 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 science and res research in in science, yeah. science and technology. Uh, that is not going to pay off anytime soon. No corporate, and it's why no corporation will make the investment. Yeah, it's they they make money in the that, short term, yeah. right? That may pay off fifty years from now. Mm -hmm. So you know, cure for cancer, uh, a, um, a you know, renew you know the solar energy, or the whole solar energy industry starts that way. It's sort of like it's sort of like moonshot kind of stuff, um, and there was a moonshot kind of thing that Trump canceled, he just zeroed out, that had been going on for, I think, the better part of a decade, called PREDICT. And PREDICT was a $200 million a year program. Mm -hmm. It, was, it was, was setting out to do for viruses and disease what the National Weather Service has done for weather. Wow. So 50, 60 years ago, your weather forecast sucked. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, you, you have no idea how much better the weather forecast has gotten. You just take it for granted, right? You take it for granted. <laughs> You there's, take an, great, yeah. there's an episode of The Crown that uh, dealt with that when some horrible fog rolled in and it was uh, it was that period where because of their air and everything, it was you couldn't tell if it was smoke or fog and they were trying to predict the weather and there was all these voodoo ways of predicting it or witch doctor ways, you know, it was so funny and it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago, <laughs> right? And and now, you know, now we're pissed when they, when the, when the, Meteorologists miss the hurricane track by ten miles. You know? <laughs> and, and, but we've just got that, that they've gotten better and better and better at, yeah. a, at a very complex task. And you, and you mentioned. Let me say real quick because I remember in your book you said uh, there was one point where someone predicted a tornado and they got it right, but that was the only chance they could get it right. And so rather than keep trying to do that, they said, "Let's not predict that anymore." Well, so, so that's funny. This is the origin of the National Weather Service that yeah. the. That these two army guys, and I think it was in the 40s, late 40s, uh -huh. it was after World War II, do predict this tornado down yeah. in you know, Kansas, and they realized how how lucky it had been, right. and they say, and they said, no, no, don't ask us, to, don't ask <laughs> us to do this again. But but never mind, they're going to ask to do it again, and and it's it's a, um, in any case, it is a great triumph of government to have organized this weather prediction machine. Yeah. And it, and, and it isn't just the government. It's, or, it's organizing also private sector research. It's not just, you know, a bunch of people in an yeah. office in Washington. It's not it's someone just, drawing a Sharpie on a map saying it's going there. No, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's something else. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, um, with the, 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 it's a really interesting idea that you could do the same sort of thing with viruses by yeah. sampling animal populations around the world, seeing what viruses, you know, are in, are in snakes, yeah. how they mutate. What's the likelihood it's going to jump into people? How it would jump into people? And you start to be able to predict what you might need, say, a vaccine for. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it's, we're a long way away. We're like, we're like where the Weather Service might have been in the 1940s or 50s. Mm -hmm. But our tools are so much better. And just to have, it's, a, it's $200 million a year. It's not a lot of money. And just to have eliminated the possibility of that research happening is so, de is so depressing to me because, you know, this seems like the worst pandemic in history, but it's not. And, no. and, and, and there is every possibility that one day there will be a, 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 a virus that, that kills kids, that kills, mm -hmm. that kills 10 percent of the people who get it, 
that is even more transmissible. We're not setting ourselves up to deal with it. And, and it's that longer term thing that to me is, is so scary. And that, and that he, and that Trump had absolutely no interest in just none. It's just like for him, that's a waste of money. It's kind of like a cousin, you know, I live in Southern California and you're in Northern California. We both have dealt with earthquakes. You know, I've dealt with my entire life. It's kind of like earthquake study, you know, the, they still can't predict earthquakes when it, when it's like, it, they can predict it when it's like, you know, when it happened 30 seconds ago, you know, <laughs> I mean, your dog can predict it probably quicker than they can, but they keep studying it. And I think it's good because maybe there are patterns here, you know, maybe the way that they, you know, who knows, you know, it's the, it's the, it's, here's what it is. It's the, I wouldn't want to take away that money for the research, you know? No, no smart people willing to take less money to engage in basic research, to create new knowledge that will one day save us all. Seems like a really good investment. And, uh, and, and it's not like these people, these are, you know, that was the thing. The only reason I ever wrote a book about this, as opposed to just a magazine article is the people who do this work are quite moving characters. Wow. Cause they yeah. see, I mean, you or you or I, I mean, maybe you, I, I, maybe you, maybe you could, but there's no way in a million years I could figure out how to better way to predict how viruses are going to jump. No, I can't. Would, I'm a comedy writer for Christ's sake. What do you think? My, my sixth, my sixth grade teacher figured out I was not the person who was ever going to be that person. You know, yeah. that they, I was identified very early on as lacking in scientific aptitude. And, and, and but those people who have that aptitude mm-hmm. and who are willing to devote it to, to the greater good of the society yeah. when they could be making quite a bit more money going and, you know, trading derivatives on wall street or whatever, those people like those should be heroes. God uh, bless and, I God, agree. and, and those people are not only not heroes, but in this current environment kind of reviled is yeah. just, it, it's just perverse to me. It, it, it feels like the whole society's value systems are screwed up. Yeah. Uh, and and the 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 greatest insult is that when when Trump gets up and talks about all these people being in the deep state. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. that's not what these people are. They're people who know things, and they're tr- trying to make the country a stronger, better country. Yeah, one of one of the biggest losses that an organization I call I'll say organization because uh, rather than as you say, rather than just speak of Trump as an individual, there's really a whole organization. Now, between the complicitness of the media, the people that enable him, all these things, you know. But uh, this, this contempt for institutional knowledge, which is so important. You know, this is not partisan knowledge or political knowledge, but institutional knowledge to know how things run, you know. And for the people who, sh- who have had jobs for 30 years, 20 years, you know, those types of jobs, they're so important in society, you know, the... The jobs that there are people that work at the White House who work through all the administrations, you know, because they know where every light switch is, you know, and, and this and that. You go in and you just fire all those people. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it it's um, I don't know. It's disturbing. I, so I want to ask you because you've been asking me questions. What's your that's pandemic? Kind of what this format is. Yeah, right? I know, but that's all right. <laughs> what is how? What has this experience been like for you? It's been it's been nine. It's been six months. It's been three months. or three and a half months. How are you? How are you coping with this new social life? Well, part of it is tough. I mean, for 
you know, being able to see family and that kind of stuff. My family's pretty close. We see each other regularly. I, I saw my niece and sister for the first time this past weekend, you know, and it seemed like forever. It was so odd. And my niece gave me a hug. She said, is it okay if I hug you? I said, I don't have COVID. Do you have COVID? She said, I don't have COVID. Well, give me a hug. You know? And we hugged. She started crying and everything. And it was just, it just dawned on me how important our interactions are and just being close and everything, you know. I'm basically here with my son. My daughter's with her mom not too far away. For me as a writer, professionally, I'm very lucky because I can write, you know, I don't have to be somewhere, as you know, you know, we're, we're fortunate in that sense, you know, but a lot of my colleagues have been out of work and I've seen a lot of friends that I have that own small businesses. I have some friends who like have restaurants have been devastated. Some of those people, and that's been really hard to, to, uh, to be witness to some of that stuff. You know? Do you, are, has it affected your sleep? your emotions, all that other stuff. I'm kind of a hermit by nature anyway. Uh So, you know, for me in that sense, the first two weeks I was a bit in a daze because you couldn't go anywhere and it was like night of living dead, you know, but, uh, like I'll talk about my son for a second. My, my son has Asperger's, you know, it's high functioning autism. And so, you know, we've always like felt, I wouldn't say feel sorry for John, but he doesn't, he spends a lot of time by himself in his computer. You know, he doesn't have a lot of friends and that kind of stuff. And for him, it's like, not everybody knows what my life is like. <laughs> I'm like, John, you're absolutely right. John's like, this is normal. Hey, what are you kidding? Oh, you can't, you're not going anywhere. Oh, no friends are coming over. <laughs> so, so my, my son is a uh, seventh grader. He's going to be in eighth grade next year. And when they, when they close the schools down, yeah. And he came home after about like two weeks, he started saying things like, is there any chance they'll never find a vaccine? He says, I really hope they uh-huh. never find it. <laughs> you know, he yeah. said, no, because he's so happy. Sort of like, I don't have to go to school anymore. Uh-huh. This is unbelievable. Yeah, my daughter, unfortunately, she was, well, fortunately, she was graduated from college this year, but couldn't have that graduation. And, you know, it's such a shame that rite of passage of having the family there and all that stuff. So that was very disappointing. But, you know, she's adjusting. She's, she's, she's a champ as I like to say, you know, but you know, the biggest thing has been the last few weeks with the whole protesting and all that, that's been more surreal almost than the COVID thing. Cause it happened right on the heels of it. And for that to happen to society during a quarantine has been me as an observer of human behavior, kind of like I said, it's fascinating to me of the things that are occurring, you know, as I look at it, there's the other side of me too that comments on it as well because I have a perspective in this. I've been reporting on this stuff for years, you know. Right. I um, think history will look back and marvel at where the society was on the issue of race while it had Donald Trump as president. Yeah. Because because you it, you can see that the society is moving in a in a direction. I mean, you could see as Obama said, a much broader coalition of people are on the streets. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's almost speaking with one voice. I mean, even the NFL has gotten on board. I mean, that's the most amazing thing to me. Mitt Romney was saying Black Lives Matter. <laughs> so so it's, it's not like things are not moving. They're moving. It's And it's amazing they're moving with the leadership that we have. But, Michael, ironically, it may have taken that for this moment to happen. You're right. You're right. You're right about that. Because remember, Ferguson happened under Obama, and people right. were just as outraged. But that match went out pretty quickly, as you remember. You know, yeah. it, it lasted for a little bit. I remember right. covering it at the time. Right. Um, there weren't the same amount of allies and that kind of stuff. It was like, 
they treated Obama like the racial janitor. Uh, Obama, you you go clean that up. You know, there's a mess over there in Ferguson. You know, yeah, that's a very good way to put it. So this is a little different, where because people have a different target. You know, yeah, um, they have something to push off of. Exactly, but ironically, it's ha- the thing that's surprising me is that it's this global thing. It's not, you know, it's not parochial. You know, yeah. which is kind of surprising. You know, that that has surprised me more than anything. Uh, well, so you're, you're, it's interesting. So you find that it hasn't disrupted your life as a writer, not as a writer, but as a producer, yes, because we can't make things. Right. Right. So, and you know, performer to a certain extent. And I really miss that a lot. There, there's a, you know, when you make shows and you do that kind of stuff, you create family in this business. I, I still, some of my best friends are people who I worked with early on in the business. who we always kept in contact with and, Sometimes you work with those people for like a month, not really that long, but they they become like family, you know, and that part of the business, I really miss a lot, you know. Yeah, we, um, were, in the, we were in the middle of our podcast season production when this happened, and that is one form, unlike film, where you can kind of do it. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's some damage done, uh, and it's harder to go out and physically report things, mm-hmm. but you can still kind of eke out the stories if you have to yeah. do it. But anything that, I mean, the, the, the whole, I mean, all of, all, all of Hollywood's been shut down. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let me ask you this question. Do you think, you know, when you see these, these protest groups asking for like big change, you know, they're not just small change, but big change. It makes me wonder, I wonder if we're at a moment and you may be better to answer this in a couple of years. Like I said, when you do your book, you know, I wonder if we're going to see big governmental change in a lot of different areas, not just in this area. Like, are we at a revolution point? I mean, it's hard to know we're in the middle of history. Do you have any feelings about that or anything? Or? Um, I think I, I think what I think is that um, my I was asked I was asked in like in November. By, by someone who was interviewing me about the fifth risk, what I thought it would take for there to be a, a revolution just in Americans' attitudes toward their own government and a resurgence of the ability of government to, to, to tackle big problems mm-hmm. and, and be trusted in tackling big problems. And I said I thought it would take a pandemic. Now, now we have a pandemic. And now what I think is if the thing went away tomorrow, and that's not, you know, that would be, it's highly unlikely, but it could mutate into a common cold. Uh, and if that, yeah. it, so let's just say that happened. It is a coronavirus. I mean, that's yeah, I mean so, so let, let's say that happened, that this, that it just ended right now. I don't know if the, if, if the message has been delivered sufficiently strongly to people that this is what happens if you don't have a revolution. In government. If you don't have, a, if you don't change the relationship of that enterprise to the society. And you don't, you start, don't just start to address really critical problems that can be addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, So, but let's take another, let's take the other extreme. Let's, let's say that. um, What if Trump gets reelected? Oh, and, uh, and let's say that the, the, the virus um, that we start to essentially get the herd immunity numbers that, that people, people just get, they're, they're tired of being in isolation, that they rebel against any kind of control. And let's say that um, a million Americans die, uh, which is not inconceivable. Um, 
then I think quite possibly, yes. If Trump's reelected, I don't have any, I don't know. I don't have, but if, if I was saying, if you get Biden in there, what kind of mandate will he have and what kind of cooperation will he get from Congress when he says this whole enterprise needs to be reformed and it needs to be strengthened in places? You know, in some cases it needs to be streamlined, but in other places it needs a lot more resources and it needs to be strengthened. It needs to be, it needs to be run in a different way and its relationship to the American people needs to change. And we need to start explaining to the American people why they need this thing. And they'll hear it now because they just watched half a million people die because we didn't do, it wasn't run properly. I think that's conceivable. I think that's conceivable. Now, on the issues of race, I mean, this is above my pay grade. I have no idea where we go there. This is not a problem. The government just fixes. Um, it, it's, it's, that's, it, it's a, you know, it's, the, it's, it's the big problem in American life. And it's, it's so thorny. I would not care to venture how, how this plays out, but, um, I like the reaction. I mean, what's going on in the streets now is heartening. It really does feel like a, a, an awakening. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and there are moments when I look at, you know, I looked at, um, I don't know if, I, I, what, happens in the, what happens in the NFL is a really big deal because unlike <laughs> the NBA, the NBA was already woke, uh, <laughs> right. right? But the, the NFL was really not. And the NFL really feels like a white Southern enterprise in a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of ways. I mean, it's, it's not just that, but it feels that way. Sure. White, white, southern, and Midwest, um, rural, um, America, America, America. But, mm-hmm. but when Drew Brees, my quarterback, because I'm from New Orleans, mm-hmm. stood up and tried to make this all about whether you were a patriot, mm-hmm. and got just slapped every which way, and backed off instantly. Yeah, that was a huge moment. It was yeah. a huge moment, and and uh, sort of like there's now a generally agreed upon unacceptability uh, in what's going on. And there isn't another, and there's no change in the conversation. Uh, So, so, you know, God knows where that takes us, but, um, but it's kind of like very, it's very positive. You know, we may have reached a certain tipping point in that, you know, that is interesting, the Drew Brees thing, because you could just look at it as, you know, Twitter mob or whatever, but you're right. It is a little more than that. I think he used three apologies. And oh, I, oh, oh, yeah. And he, he's obviously very sincere. I don't doubt his sincerity, but he never would have had to do that a few years ago. No. And right. his, and his, the way that all, you know, that, that, that I, if I had to guess what's going through his mind, it wasn't the Twitter mob. It was that some large number of his teammates. Yeah. Said, no, 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 you don't do this. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and he, and he heard him and he heard him. And, yeah. and that the teammates felt emboldened to say it is a very good sign yeah. because I think, I think 15, 20 years ago, maybe not so much, right. uh, maybe even 10 years ago, maybe even five, look, Colin Kaepernick got run out of the league. Um, so it's, um, without, without too much resistance. Uh, yeah. so I, I, I'm things, it's not, this is not a static, stable environment. And, uh, and I have no, I'm not, I'm not going to predict it. But I do think, I do think there is like a sequel to the Fifth Risk. That is a very hopeful book about what happens when America wakes up, up, up to the problems, the, the big problems in the society that can be addressed mm-hmm. uh, with leadership from the top. And uh, I'm hopeful I write that book. Yeah, uh, me too. 
Let's hope so. Well, let's, we have a couple of questions coming in, Michael. I, I know we only have a limited amount of time. We do appreciate you being here for everybody. You have so many fans out there. So, Ted, what are you, uh, a couple yeah, of so here, questions? Here's the first question. Uh, first question is, I keep trying to come up with a word that describes where we are, and I think reckoning does that. It's, it's about what we haven't done, um, what we need to do, um, and what we have done. Um, would you agree with me? Does it, how, what word do you think describes where we are today? Um, that's it. It's like wake up call. Is that a word? Can I, can I string it all together without the spaces? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> can we make that a one word, like a German word? Wake up call. Alarm. And, yeah. Yeah, wake up call. But it's, um, that's what it feels like to me. And you can't, what you can't get away from is that 4% of the world's population and we got 30% of the deaths. And we're supposed to be the best at this. Something's wrong. And, um, and it threatens everybody in some way or, or other. So it isn't like the hurricane that happened to some other people or the earthquake happened to some other people. The whole country is implicated. The whole world's implicated. But the whole country is implicated, even rich people. And, um, and I think that is galvanizing. So, so we're paying a price. We are paying a price for the way we've lived our, lived our democracy. Uh, and, and now we have a chance for, you know, we. We are going to need to be led. That, that we, you know, people are leaders are going to have to stand up and speak to us about what's happened in a way that explains what happened, why it happened, and how we stop it from happening. This, and not just with disease, lots of other things. Inequality, it, you know, inequality in a way is its own pandemic in this society, mm-hmm. um, and it, it and costs lots of lives and lots of happiness, yeah. um, and it's it's. Uh, so these problems can be addressed, um, and it's just it, it, we need the leaders who will address them. Uh, two more questions. Uh, one here says, uh, how do you think the pandemic will be written about in three to five years or in 10 years? I feel this, the way the story is told now is very much like a sporting game. It's really all about scores and stats. Ah, so I, don't feel, I don't feel that it's being told that way at all. I mean, it depends on who you know, right? My father knows 18 people who died. Mm-hmm. So, so that wasn't, that's not so okay. much scores and stats. Um, Sorry about that. No, no, it's nobody. It's not, pers- I don't mean to play the victim. It's just, it's, it's that I think it depends on where you sit in the middle of this. Yeah. That, um, and if you're sitting in a long way away from people who are falling ill, then maybe that you, that's the way you look at it. All right. I think the way I think, I, what, the way I fear it will be told is, um, that this was a warm-up for a much graver disease and that we either did or didn't respond by getting ourselves ready for that. that. That we should be not looking at this as the end of a story, like, oh, there were all these warnings, this would happen and this happened. Um, and then it all went away. We should be looking at this as a progression and that, that this may be a fairly trivial event in relation to one we have to deal with in the future. And how we respond to this is going to drive our ability to to respond to the one that ha- occurs in the future. So I think I th- that's the way I think it's going to it's going to be viewed. It's, it is a moment in disease history where <laughs> w- really a moment in disease history where we either we either figured it out or we didn't figure it out. Um, I mean, there's, 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 people get plague amnesia, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be a hundred years, uh, you know, before the next one. And 
I think that too, there's so there's there are too many of us on the planet, and it's it's uh, yeah. this is a premonition, uh, and it's just and there are things to do to get ourselves ready, and we should be doing it now. We should be learning real time how you manage this, where you need to install empower people, who teaching people who they should be trusting, like with you, you, you that these public health people. We really need to trust them. And broadly, I think Americans have done a pretty good job. They've been, you know, there are pictures of parties in the Ozarks and people going to the beach in California. But I think broadly, there's been pretty good compliance. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very hard to show people the benefits of prevention. This is the, this is what, this is what um, leaders can do is they can show, look, you should not be upset that we had to close things down to prevent this disease. You should be celebrating the fact that 2 million people didn't die. You should focus your attention that way. But um, it's a hard sell. But I think this, I think the story of this disease is going to be how we responded to it and did we prepare for the next one. And our final question, uh, Michael, a gentleman says, the stock market is too often cited as a measure of how well the economy is doing. The president does this every day. Um, I disagree. Uh, what is a better measure of how the economy is doing and how did we fall into the thinking that the stock market is? So I'm totally unprepared for this question. And there's a really good answer that if you gave me like 24 hours to call some smart people, I would give it to you. But it would be some measure that, that, that measured inequality. Part, that's, a, that's part of the measure. Um, that measured, uh, you know, growth in, in, in wages. Uh, that measured number of people in poverty, what you really want, what you really want is not some raw economic measure, is you, what you want is some raw happiness measure, like some happiness index that would measure how the economy, that would tell you how the economy is doing. Um, so there's no, so if you ask me, is there one good statistic that's out there? I don't think there actually is. I don't, you know, GDP is not a great one. Um, the stock market is not a great one. Uh, Unemployment numbers, you know, up to a point, they're pretty good in telling you how the economy is doing, but, but only up to a point. So I'd say there's no, it's, it's a place where we're stats deficient um, because you can, gen- all the stats we have can be made, can, can be used, they can generate um, uh, the impression that the economy is doing very well, when in fact, it's not doing all that well at all. Uh, so. Um, so I don't have, I don't have a simple answer. I don't have a simple answer. There you go. Sorry. But even your non-simple answers are very interesting. Not that interesting. But I do my best. (laughs) Uh, Larry, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much, Michael. It's always great talking to you. Be well in Alameda County. And, uh, we will be looking forward to that next book. Believe me, we'll really be looking forward to it. But in the meantime, you can still get Fifth Risk. It's a great read, you guys. And as Michael said, to read about some of the people who are kind of invisible, but they're doing the hard work and doing those things. And, and some of those risks you talk about still, I'm still a little scared. <laughs> don't, just don't leave your house and you're fine. I know, exactly. Thanks, everybody, LA Light Talks, and thanks for being on Black on the Air as well, Michael. We'll see you. Bye-bye. <laughs>